Hello, and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. We are really excited to have a special guest because, as you know, in the past, we've had authors and we've had people connected to the competition for Canada Reads. But let's face it, without publishers, none of this stuff would be possible at all. So we are so excited to have Bruce Walsh, a publisher with us today. And he was formerly with the University of Regina Press, and he is about to start a new job at the House of a Nancy Press in Toronto. And I want to just say how I came to connect with Bruce, because I think this is one of those things is just sort of serendipity. But we, I had been reading a number of books and noticed that the last three, pretty much the last three books I read were all published by House of a Nancy Press. And then I am friends with Lucy Thistle on Facebook, and it turns out Bruce is also friends with Lucy. And when I realized he was starting the new job and it was all connected, I thought, my gosh, I'm going to reach out and see if he'll talk to us. And he said yes. So Bruce, we would really love to thank you and welcome you to our podcast. I'm so happy to be here, Rebecca. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and just jump right in. And I did tell, I warned Bruce when we when I sent him the email, I said, listen, some of these questions are going to be kind of publishing 101 because the truth is I really don't know what publishers do specifically. And I thought this would be a good chance for all of us to learn a little bit. So, but we're going to start first with, can you tell us a bit about your career path and how you came to be the new publisher of House of Anansi Press? <laughs> well, that's a, that's kind of a long answer, a career path, but I became the publisher of House of Anansi Press because the the person currently in that role, Sarah McLaughlin, who really built House of a Nancy Press, it had been around for a long time and sort of uh, fallen into uh, bad times. And, and Scott Griffin uh, bought the house and uh, he hired Sarah McLaughlin as publisher and president. And she took it from, I think, five books a year to uh, now close to 100. And it is now Canada's leading independent publishing house. And, and about two years ago at the Frankfurt Book Fair, she approached me and she said, do you want my job? And I said, I said, yes. I thought the first thing I thought was, uh, yeah, fiction. I'd love to work in fiction again. I've been, uh, I've been working, uh, at, as a, as a publisher of uh, University of Regina Press. And, uh, we were not doing fiction. We were doing poetry, but I do love working with fiction. And, uh, and then the other thing I thought was, oh my God, Sarah McLaughlin's footsteps. This is terrifying. But, Regardless, I still said yes. And so uh, so it began uh, a long time ago, a while ago, and now uh, Sarah's uh, retiring. And uh, so I'll be jumping in and, uh, and uh, doing my best to, to keep up with what she started. So tell us, what, what was your career path? Did you start out thinking like, I want to be a publisher or did it just career path took you down that road? Well, I'll go back a little bit further than that. I, um, I'm currently writing a book for Biblioasis called How the Holocaust Saved My Life, which is a memoir. And it, it really begins when I was 11 years old and coming home from school and suicidal and thinking about how I was going to kill myself. And I was thinking about, I knew where the guns were, but I thought that would be messy. And I knew there was drugs in the medicine cabinet, but I didn't know which ones to take. And so this was what I was thinking about when I, I hit the front door of our house and I could smell that the fire was on in the fireplace in the middle of the afternoon, which was highly unusual in our family. And I walked in the front door and it was quiet, which was also unusual in our family. 
And then I heard in the living room, someone crying. So I went into the living room and it was my mother uh, who was, she had the fireplace on. She was laying on the couch. She had a blanket over her. She had a book in her hands and she was crying. So of course I forgot about my issues and I ran to my mother. What is the matter? And she was reading a book called uh, Mila 18 by Leon Uris about the Warsaw ghetto uprising. And the, the moment I had walked in the door, she was reading a scene in which Nazis were throwing Jewish babies into the air and shooting them. And I couldn't believe that anybody would do such a thing. And she explained to me about Hitler, the Jews, and the Holocaust. And my mind immediately went to, well, if the Germans were that wrong about the Jews, then maybe they're that wrong about me. And I looked at the book in her hand and I thought, I don't know enough to kill myself. And what I needed to find out about the world was going to be found in books. And so that is where I became a reader. And I started to read, of course, you know, when you're 11, uh, you, you're starting to read things uh, that you do not understand. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I can't wait till I'm old enough to understand what, I, it, it, what it is I was reading. But I read, I started to read, and my mother had uh, really a collection of books on the Holocaust. And this is 1971. And there, that was very early days for that. But she was very interested for uh, personal reasons. And so I was able to read and discover the world the world that I needed to discover in those books. And of course, what I discovered was that it wasn't just Jews that Hitler killed. He killed political dissidents, he killed uh, gypsies, and he also killed homosexuals. And when I came across that in the books, my first thought was, well, if Hitler didn't like me, I can't be that bad. And so that was really that was really that really opened up the entire world for me, and it became and I became a reader because of it. And of course, I went on and I went to university, and and I was working in a restaurant in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And um, somebody came. I was studying political science at Dalhousie, and somebody came in and he said he was going to take a publishing course in Toronto. And I thought, I you know, like you don't know what you want to do when you're you know twenty something. And I and my head exploded, and I thought, oh my god, publishing. That's what I want to do. It just sort of, it all came together for me. And I thought, because my feeling was, well, if a book saved my life, then I want to be a part of the process that can do that for other people. That's how I came into publishing. And then my first job in publishing with, was with Oxford University Press. I was a sales rep. So I went around to bookstores with our catalogs and I talked about all the books that were coming out and, and tried to get them to, to buy them. And take orders and all that sort of thing. And about three and a half years into the job, I also became a, a political activist in Toronto. The, the Canadian government at that time, the federal government, was censoring uh, gay books that were going into the gay bookstores in, in Canada. And not only were they censoring the gay books, but they were censoring all the safe sex information that was crossing the border into Canada. And uh, in, the, in the backs of gay magazines, uh, which were not just, uh, and these are porn magazines I'm talking about, uh, they always had uh, the safe sex information and every reference to anal sex was blacked out. And the gay magazines, of course, at that time were not just about uh, the naked pictures. They had the politics. They had the cultural information. It really was where we got our information from. There was no internet. There was no, there was no uh, big publishing industry. It was really that was where you got your information from. So they were really important. And they were certainly important in terms of uh, safe sex information. I mean, 
people were not going to get public health and getting pamphlets. I mean, this is where they were really getting the information from. And the government was censoring it. And it was the only thing we had. And the other thing they were trying to do, and this is during the Reagan era, during the Meech Commission and, and all of the attacks against freedom of expression in the United States. It was also happening in Canada. And uh, and so I became a political activist and, and really didn't know anything. I was just there, you know, folding pamphlets and, you know, taking money at fundraisers and stuff like that. And one day, uh, Oxford announced that they were not going to bring a book in from the United States called Gay Ideas, written by a political uh, philosopher uh, by the name of Richard Moore, because it contained photographs by Robert Maplethorpe. And it was a, it was really a political philosophy on the role of homosexuals in society. And uh, they were going to drop the book. So I decided to resign in protest. I mean, it was, I thought it was the end of my career in publishing. And it was a terrifying thing to do. I didn't have any money. I mean, and I became extraordinarily poor, but I became a full-time activist really at that point for about two years. I mean, it was a terrible time because everybody was dying. And so I ended up taking over this organization called Censor Stop. And I ended up, and I didn't know how to do anything, but you just, you just fumble your way through. And I, I, it turned out I was very good at getting stories in the media. The Canadian media ignored us. The, the American media, which actually has, has an understanding of freedom of expression issues, were very interested. So my first big story was on the front page of the LA Times. Then the, the New Yorker did it, the New York Times. And that forced the Canadian media to wake up. And at the same time, we had these court cases that were going on. So as an activist, I'd go around to all of these uh, various organizations in Toronto where I was living at the time, people who were supposed to be interested in this sort of thing. And this was the early 80s, and they were the, the mid-80s, I should say. And they were like, oh, that's been going on for years. It's no big deal. And it's like, my friends are dying. This is a big deal. I learned through that process a lot of things, but one of them was uh, how to find my voice and to stand up for things that I believed in. And it was through that work uh, that publishers started to contact me because they saw this sort of media I was able to get, and, uh, and they wanted me to do that in terms of publicity for them. I did that, and, uh, and I ended up working. I, I've worked in a lot of different places, but um, looked after Canada for Routledge. I was the sales rep. And then I was hired by McGill Queen's University Press, where I looked after marketing and publicity and, and had three national bestsellers, first time in the history of the house. And it was like, wow, maybe I do know what I'm doing, you know. And then McClellan and Stewart called and I became the uh, director of marketing and publicity at McClellan and Stewart. So I got to work with, you know, Alice Monroe and Margaret Atwood and Leonard Cohen. And that was like totally unexpected. I mean, like I didn't expect any of this stuff. And then uh, McClellan and Stewart was taken over by Random House and they closed the marketing department. So I was let go. And the next day, Margaret Atwood called. She left a message on my machine and she said, Bruce, it's Margaret Atwood calling. Call me. Let's discuss the future. And I thought, oh, my God, Lady Oracle's calling to discuss the future. Anyway, <laughs> so I went to work for her. And she uh, she had the long pen, which was a long distance signing device operating over the Internet. And it was really designed to facilitate book signings, but authors didn't have to get on an airplane. So I did this for a number of years with her, and uh, I got it in all, all the biggest places in, in the world, Hachette, Random House, Borders, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones in the UK, HMV, and then 2008 hit. 
And Borders was moving the fastest on this. They were starting something called the Bookstore of the Future. And then, of course, that, that meant that uh, Barnes & Noble had to do it too. And then 2008 hit and they were not able to, uh, no longer able to borrow money. And that was the first sign that there was really a problem within the economy. It was like, they can't borrow money. They're a Fortune 500 company. What's going on? And uh, of course, it was, the, it was the collapse of the economy. The whole publishing effort ended. And Margaret Atwood said, doesn't matter. You can stay. You can do whatever you want to do. You know, we, we don't want you to go. And I said, you know what? I want to go back to publishing. And so that's what I did. I went back to publishing. And then I, I did a lot of uh, consulting work outside of publishing, too, which I, I really enjoyed. And then, um, and then the job at University of Regina Press came up. And a friend of mine who lived out there, she contacted me and she said, I don't know if you want to live in Regina. But this job was made for you. And I contacted Atwood. I said, I loved academic publishing. And I said, I'd love to be an academic publisher, but I never finished my degree. You know, like I figured I wanted to be a publishing and I left. And she said, oh, what do they care? You're, they're not hiring you to be a professor. So I applied for the job and I got it. And so I was there for six years. And I went there with very, very, very specific things that I wanted to accomplish. Yeah, that's actually kind of what I wanted to ask you because First of all, I had no idea because when I read a little bit about your background, I had no idea that you had that wide of a variety of experiences. But the, yeah, the question I wanted to ask you, because I was reading about what the University of Regina Press was like before you got there. But when you went there, did you have a specific plan going into it or did it take time to develop a plan? No, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do. You know, my friend, when she contacted me, she the, the job was actually closing the, the, the next day. And that night I couldn't sleep. And, and it, I was thinking, well, do I want the job? Do I want to move to Regina? You know, like that was a big thing. And I thought, well, you know, I see real, real problems within the academy. And we see the humanities dying on the vine. Uh, really, uh, students are staying away. They're not. They're not studying history. They're not studying English. They're not studying uh, classics. And there's a reason for that. I mean, I believe there's a reason for that. And I think that the the academy has done a terrible job in terms of communicating to potential students that there's something interesting and in, in this for them. And a big part of the problem, and I, I learned this while I was at McGill Queens, was the level of the writing. The books are absolutely inaccessible, and they're written to close off the broader world, and they're only speaking to other specialists. And they don't convey the excitement that you can find within those disciplines. And so I thought, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to be an academic publisher, was to publish academic books for a broader audience so that we can convey the enthusiasm and the excitement and the reason why one would want to go into history, for instance. And so that was what I wanted to do. So one of the things I thought about was I want to publish academic books for a broader audience. And also, I was very, very interested in Indigenous issues. And therefore, I wanted to go out there in many ways. I mean, it's, it's Cree, Métis, Soto, but it's mainly Cree. And it has a large, active, important Cree community there. And therefore, I thought, well, I want to go there and publish Indigenous Voices. So those were the two ideas that I had when I went out there and, and really hit the ground running. Oh, the other thing I wanted to do was, I, I believe that academic publishing can be exciting, and you can sell a lot of copies. 
you can participate in the conversation. You can actually influence the conversations that are happening. If I'm going to do anything, I don't want to like do be sleepy about it. I, you know, I'm really, I want to bring a lot of vigor and excitement and bring as, as much in, if I'm interested in it, then I think the world can be interested in it too. And that's always been my attitude as a publisher. And so I wanted to go to a place and demonstrate that academic and regional publishing could be done in a way it doesn't matter where it is, but it could be done successfully. And so that was the other thought that I had when I went to uh, Regina. Well, I have to say that just in reading about you and reading about the press, I just purchased two, two of the books, Clearing the Plains and the Education of Augie Morasti. So I'm waiting for those to arrive. But just in reading about it, it I got excited because it's exactly the kind of nonfiction that I love. It just spoke to me. So yeah, excellent job on those two books for sure. <laughs> well, you know, Clearing the Plains was the first book we published under the new University of Regina Press. And I was still living in Toronto when I when I was hired and I had to go out and get a place. But I, you know, I said, send me send me the list of things that you have coming. And there was really nothing there. There were a few things because they didn't know if the press was going to close down or if it was going to happen. And, you know, there were there were political issues within the university and they decided they decided they were that they were going to keep it. And, that, and that's why I was brought in. But I, they sent me a list of what they had. And one of the books there was called Policies of Disease, Politics of Starvation. And I thought, politics of starvation, that sounds very interesting. So I said, send me that. And I literally, I was reading it and I fell out of my chair. I fell out of my chair because I did not know the information that book contained. And I am a student of Canadian history. I am interested in Canadian history. And this book told me that our first prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, implemented something called the, the National G Dream, which was to make Canada into this coast-to-coast-to-coast -to -coast -to -coast country. And the way he did it on the prairies, he managed a famine that was happening on the prairies because they killed all the buffalo, which was the, the primary food source for the, for the people there. They were prior to the decimation of the buffalo, and this was done by colonial people, that they were the tallest and strongest people in the world, the Cree people on the plains. And uh, so uh, they created the environment for a famine. And then when the famine hit, they said, well, we'll give you food if you sign a treaty. And we'll give you food if you walk to these reservations. And uh, we'll give you this and we'll give you that. So thousands of people died. They, they actually walked them to reservations and they became essentially prisoners in these reservations. You had to have a pass in order to leave. And actually South Africa came to Canada to study the reservation system, and they used it to implement our apartheid. So this book absolutely shocked me. And I thought, it's written well enough. It's not, it's not great literature. It's workmanlike prose. It's dense. It's packed with information. But it's all information we don't know anything about. And I thought, I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that this book gets read. And it was the first book we put out. It became a national bestseller, it won a ton of awards. It sold about 30,000 copies to date, which is in the American equivalent, about 300,000 copies, which is enormous for an academic book. 
And it has, more importantly, it has changed the narrative of Canadian history. And so it opened up a whole new type of conversation in Canada about the role of colonialism. I mean, that conversation was happening, but this really solidified it and has changed politics in the country. So, I mean, that's the sort of thing I'm interested, interested in as a publisher. I'm interested in not just publishing books, but I want to change the conversation. I want to, I want my books to intervene in culture so they, they have an impact beyond just the book. The Education of Augie Morassi, another book, I mean, this was an incredible experience. And when I got to, to Saskatchewan, it was like, okay, who are the authors I need to know? I want to know who I need to know. And so one of them was, uh, first person recommended to me was David Carpenter. So I went and I got his books and it's like, wow, this guy can really write, really a fabulous writer. And he was at a, at a writer's conference that I went to in Regina. And I said, Hey, you know, I really want to meet you. And I, I said, I'm very interested if you're, if you have any nonfiction, I'd be so happy to publish it, uh, work with you on it. And he said, I'm working on a novel right now and it's making me crazy. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to get to nonfiction until, till it's done. And I said, well, I'm here. I'm, you know, when you're ready, I'm ready. And he came back about 10 minutes later. He said, you know, I got this manuscript in my drawer by this old Cree trapper about his residential experiences. Do you think you'd be interested in looking at that? And I said, send it to me. So he sent it to me. And what had happened was that Augie Morasti was insistent that his story was going to be told. He wanted people to know what happened to him. He contacted the president of the University of Saskatchewan, and he said, I've written this story and I need somebody to help. And it went from department to department to department, and it ended up on David McCarpenter's desk, and he contacted him. And this went on back and forth for about 10 years, and then Augie disappeared. He couldn't find Augie. But he got the manuscript, they got the manuscript to a place where it was, um, well, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, it was like, whoa. So anyway, so this is what uh, what Dave sent me, and I said I read it immediately, and I said I called him. I was like, okay, we're doing it, and he goes, I don't know where Augie is. He got in the car and he drove up to I think Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and he asked everybody, have you ever heard of this Augie Morassi? And everybody's like, oh yeah, we know Augie. He was a he was somebody. Everybody said, oh, he's an old drunken Indian, you know. And uh, he's lives, you know, he's in the park, he's here, he's there. And uh, Augie used to travel around in the bus in, uh, in Prince Albert, and he would say to people, I'm a writer. And they'd say, oh, you're not a writer, you know, you're blah, blah. And anyway, so he found Augie, and we got the contract signed. And Augie's daughters, I mean, they were always trying to get him off the street, but he liked to be out. He, he lived rough. He liked being out. He also had a place in the woods. He was a, he was a trapper. And anyway, we got the book out and the book became, it, it launched on the front page of the Globe and Mail because Augie was homeless when we published the book. But what was so beautiful about that book? I mean, the book became a huge uh, sensation, another, num another uh, best-selling Canadian book and had a huge impact again on what's being taught in schools. I mean, such a, a dream. But Augie always said he was a writer, and everybody always said he wasn't a writer. And then the book comes out, and he becomes celebrated. And I always say, you know, if he had, if he had real opportunities like non-Indigenous people have, he would have gone on to be one of our great writers. 
but he never had those opportunities. And so for me, that book was beautiful and it was nominated for a number of the Saskatchewan Book Awards. And he said, I don't care if it wins. He had, we bought two tables. He had his, his daughters and his grandkids and his nieces and nephews. It was gorgeous. And he said, I'm just so happy to be here. And then all of the power brokers of Saskatchewan went up to him and they introduced themselves and they, you know, like it was just, he got what he, he, he got his reckoning in the end and it was beautiful. And he said to me, he said, you know, I want to die famous. And he was, uh, you know, he was 85 at the time and he died at 87, I think. And when he died, it became a national news story. And I was just like, he wanted to die famous and we were able to facilitate that for him. So that's another one of my things. I am so interested in finding people who we never hear from. You know, we, we, hear, we know about this person. We know about that person. Those are not the people I want to publish. I want to publish people we don't hear from. I want to, I want to read books by people who tell me things I do not know. I want my world shaken by the books I read. Yeah, well, that's what that's actually a question I wanted to ask you about was it, with regard to publishing, because I don't know exactly how it works in the sense that do people approach up? I mean, I know people can submit, you know, manuscripts to publishers, but do you are you out there looking for them as much as they are coming to you? I would say most of the books we published, I found. Wow. Yeah. So I would. And, you know, it would just be. It would be a conversation, you know, like somebody would tell you a story and it'd be like, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, and, I, you know, and you don't say, oh, would you write a book on it unless you know these people can write, right? That's how I get most of my books, you know, and, and it's anywhere, you know, you're standing in the line at a food court and you start having a conversation with somebody in front of you and it's like, now that's interesting and something else that happens with me which is weird but it's it is if somebody tells me something that can be something important i will get shivers i get physical shivers so we had seven national bestsellers when i was at uh, regina during the six years i was there and every one of them i knew before we published the book that the book could be a bestseller. And, and this is the thing about a publisher. You make a bestseller. So I knew how to make a bestseller. I had learned. I'd learned uh, because of my experience at McGill Queens and then working at McClellan and Stewart and then working with Random House. And so I understood what needs to happen in order to make a bestseller. And so I have just applied those principles. And it's just basic publishing 101. My whole thing was, uh, you know, so as a publisher, you really need to be constantly reading the news, following the culture, thinking about the zeitgeist. And so my job as a publisher is to take that manuscript and hook it into the zeitgeist. How does my book speak to this moment in time? And of course, the book could, we could start working on it three or four years in advance. And by the time you get it, it's like, okay, Times have changed since we first signed the book, but things are happening in the culture, which is why I'm interested in the book anyway. And I am going to position that book and package that book in such a way that it speaks to the, uh, the zeitgeist. So that's my approach. So what does an average week look like for you? Like, does it, is it being on the phone all the time? Is it like, what, what does a week look like when you're a publisher? 
Well, in publishing, there's an awful lot of out of the office. And, uh, and of course, Regina, which is three hours by plane to Toronto, I figured it out. I was spending uh, two weeks a year, two solid weeks a year, traveling between Regina and Toronto. And that's where the, that's where the, strip, the trip starts. And then you go to Frankfurt, you go to London, you go to New York, you go wherever it is. And so you spend a lot of time travel. It's a, there's a lot of travel and you're out and about and you're meeting people and you're talking to people all the time. And you're just, I mean, you're doing work, you're meeting with media, you're meeting with sales reps, you're meeting, you're going to book fairs, you're meeting with agents, all that sort of thing. And I, I wasn't buying books, I was selling books. So one of the things was to establish the press. One of my goals was to make the press a national and international press. So that was my thing. So I spent a lot of time out in the world looking for, you know, having business meetings with all kinds of people. But as you go, you're constantly meeting people and having conversations. And I'm a Nova Scotian. I mean, some people say we're curious. Other people say we're nosy. And so I'm always asking people questions and I want to know, you know, who are you and where are you from and who's your father and who's your mother and how did you get there? And, you know, like all of that stuff, those lead to the types of conversations that can sometimes lead to a book. Oh my gosh, I should have been a publisher because I'm the same person. Like everywhere I go, I want to know <laughs> who everybody is, what they're doing. I want to know their backstory. So I missed my calling. I should have been a publisher. <laughs> well, you know what? You're doing it here, right? I mean, this is what you get to do with the podcast is you get to ask those questions. Yeah, I do. That's what I love about it. Absolutely. Now, I do have a question, and I realize you're still a few weeks away from starting your new job, but do you have any goals right now for your new position with House of Anansi? Do you have any kind of goals you could talk about at all? House of Anansi Press is uh, the leading independent publishing house in the country. So unlike Regina, where I had to build a brand, it's already there. It's all right there. It has a really fantastic team of people already in place. So when I went to Regina, I mean, there was a team of people, but by the time I left, there was only one of those original people and it was all new people, right? You're, because a publishing house is only as good as your people. As the publisher, you're not doing the real work. I mean, I oversee absolutely everything. You know, you're having conversation, you read the manuscript and you don't read every manuscript because you can't, but you read those manuscripts that are important and that you think are, are the ones that have the most possibilities in the world. And then you talk to the editor and you're constantly having conversations with the editor and the editor's constantly having conversations with the authors. And, and so there's that happening. And then you're constantly having conversations with the managing editor who really manages the timelines. So in order for books to hit the market when you want to, which is when you say you're going to do it in the, in the catalog, you have a work back schedule and you need to hit all of these marks along the way. So that means that editorial needs to pass it on to the managing editor, the managing editor needs to bring in a copywriter. The copywriter needs to get that done on time. Then you need to get it, send it to a proofreader. The proofreader needs to get it on time. Then marketing and design, we're having conversations about what the book is. I wrote almost, well, I, I get the draft copies from the editors on the catalog copy and then the back jacket copy. The most important thing besides what's in the book for a publisher, uh, a successful publishing uh, venture, is the back jacket. That is really how you position the book. Uh, it's who you get to blurb the book. All of that sort of thing, because that's the first thing you read. 
you see the cover the cover needs to startle you or strike you it cannot bore you it cannot be like every other cover and and you work very very closely with it with the designer to make sure that they do something that is really interesting and then if that's effective and you have a blurb at the top from somebody famous and then you turn it over because everybody's looking for a recommendation and you turn it over and that tells the story of what the book is and that's what we do as publishers we tell the story of the book so the story that I thought I was going to be telling when I first started talking with the author four years ago, by the time I get the book, that story is going to change because the zeitgeist has changed. And I need to tell the story in a way that appeals to the zeitgeist. And when I think about that, I'm also thinking constantly about the media. So I want my books to speak to the media. And because if, without the media, we're nothing. We need the media to get on board. And when we have the media on board, then we're on the way. So a lot of my books, I mean, there's a, a radio show in Canada called The Current. It's a, the leading weekly radio show. And I'd always meet with the books producer there. And finally, he said, Bruce, what do you want? Uh, you know, because I'm always pushing, right? And he'd say, it's like, it's like Random House and University of Regina Press. Like, can nobody else be on the show? And it's like, that's not my problem. That's your problem. This author needs to be on the show. <laughs> and so I'm very aggressive, you know, like I will, if I believe in a book, my job as the publisher is to give it everything I have and to give that my team, to encourage my team for, the, for them to give everything they have. So, you know, it is the managing editor. Her role is absolutely crucial. The editor's role, absolutely crucial. The designer's role, absolutely. The marketing people, you know, so it's about keeping everybody on board and getting them excited. So I'm excited about the project. Then they, then I convey that excitement to the rest of the team. And then together we convey that, that excitement to the market. Well, you know, I have to ask, though, because it's interesting knowing all of what goes into and the years that it takes to get something published and then to want to obviously sell that book and get it out there. So something like American Dirt comes along where they've worked so long and so hard and then it comes out and there's all that controversy related to it. Do you know about that whole story about American Dirt? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. They worked so hard, but it but it all blew up in their faces ultimately, you know? Well, I mean, I saw the controversy and I said, well, boy, they just made that book a number one bestseller. And that's exactly what happened. That's true. <laughs> it was the same thing with Jordan Peterson. I mean, all of this vitriol directed at Jordan Peterson. I thought, look at you people, you're, you're, you're going to make it a number one bestseller. And that's exactly what they did. You know, so sometimes the best approach, if you don't like an idea, is just to shut up about it. I was on the board of Penn Canada. I was a freedom of expression person for years. I believe in freedom of expression. I got in a lot of trouble in Regina over freedom of expression because I refused to censor a book. That just, I mean, there's a whole story there, but that will be in my own book that I'm publishing. You know that when you try to suppress something, often it can have the opposite effect. And so that's exactly what happened with American Dirt. You know, some people thought it was the worst thing in the world and other people thought, oh, I really like that book. Just because somebody has one analysis doesn't mean we are all going to agree. That book is a huge success. I would credit the backlash against it for making it so. The same with Jordan Peterson. They made him an international star. And what they should have done if they didn't like what he had to say was just shut up and let it disappear. 
but that is not where we live today. Well, and our, our last question, and I don't even know if you're going to have an answer for it, but I want to know, is there a book that you've read that you really wished you had been the publisher for that book? Well, oh, so many books. I mean, I'm reading, is it called The, the Mirror and the Light? Or is it The Light and the Mirror? <laughs> it's the, the third book in Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall trilogy, which uh, the first two books won the Booker Prize. And this is the final uh, book. It's the uh, Thomas Cromwell, who was Henry VIII's fixer during the Tudor England. And I have to say, I, I dreamt in Tudor England during the first two books. So I was so excited about that book. So, I mean, that's a dream to publish a book like that. I also, I just before that read a book called Being Mortal. And of course, I'm not going to be able to remember the subtitle or the author's name. It's a nonfiction work by a doctor who writes for The New Yorker. And it's really about end of life. Uh, so medicine can extend life. Is that the best approach? Do you want to extend life and have absolutely no quality of life? Or do you want people to decide for themselves what is what do they want from life? And maybe you want to decide that you're not going to have all of these treatments and you're not going to have a third round of chemo and you're not going to do all these things. And so it was, it's a really important book. And it was actually Sarah McLaughlin, the, the uh, publisher of House of Anansi Press, who recommended that book to me. And, and now a lot of people have read it and, and, and it really is a part of the conversation. It really has guided that conversation for so many people about, you know, because we're getting older, parents are getting older, you know, and these are really important things to think about. So I'd love to publish that. Yeah, that's where we're living right now. Absolutely. that That's very true. I worked with Alice Monroe, and I love her. I love her writing. And so I, of course, I want to find the next Alice Monroe. I want to publish the next Margaret Atwood. You know, I want to, I want to find those brilliant, young people and give them an opportunity and then and then as i say give them everything we have so they can realize their potential wow well i really look forward because as i said since i just read three books within the last month or so all from house of anansi press we really look forward to your tenure there and seeing what you produce and you and your team and we want to wish you the very very best uh success there and thank you so much for talking to us today well, thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, Shauna. Really, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you would like us to continue providing great content like this, please like, share, comment, and tell all your friends about Canada Reads American Style. Bye.